Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. The 2017 American Heart Association scientific statement suggests norepinephrine may be used as a first-line treatment option for the management of cardiogenic shock. But alternative vasopressors or inotrope therapy should be individualized based on shock etiology. Historically, acute myocardial infarction has accounted for most cardiogenic shock cases, but recent studies suggest an increase in additional etiologies that may play a role. What does this mean for clinicians? It only adds to the complexity of early identification and resuscitation of shock. But fear not, speaking with us today is Dr. Andrew Jadis, who will review literature comparing vasopressors and inotropes for the management of cardiogenic shock, then help us select optimal pharmacotherapy regimens given individual patient characteristics. I'd like to invite everyone in the audience to take a journey back to the past. In the late 1800s, scientists discovered the first hormone, epinephrine, a chemical compound re re uh, released by the adrenal medulla that upon intravenous injection was found to cause arterial vasoconstriction. For the next half a century, scientists continued to discover additional endogenous catecholamines and also synthetic agents. In the 1950s, cardiogenic shock was primarily caused by acute myocardial infarction, in which patients had a high mortality rate uh, above 80%. Many agents were suggested to help maintain perfusion, although norepinephrine was largely abandoned out of concern for its excess alpha uh, effects causing vasoconstriction, while dopamine, an agent with mixed alpha and beta activity, was thought to be the preferred agent as it could increase cardiac output in these patients. Despite advances of modern medicine and re early revascularization, patients with cardiogenic shock still have a strikingly high mortality rate, up to 34%. This suggests that we have much room to grow in our understanding and management of cardiogenic shock. That brings us to our learning objectives for today's session. First, we'll be looking at the clin clinical heterogeneity of cardiogenic shock and its impacts on clinical outcomes. Then we'll be looking at the current literature describing the usage of vasopressors and inotropes in these patients. And lastly, we'll be design, uh, desi designing a pharmacotherapy plan for these patients based on individual characteristics. In general, shock can be described as circulatory failure where an imbalance of oxygen and demand and supply lead to tissue dysoxia and, and organ failure. Largely, these are, consist of four main etiologies. Of note, distributive shock, which is known by its hallmark vasodilatory effects, represents two-thirds of patients with shock, where a smaller, less than, or roughly one-sixth of, patient, one of patients present with cardiogenic shock, which is known for its hallmark decrease in cardiac output. The remainder of the presentation will focus on cardiogenic shock, but I want you to know that it's not necessarily the most common etiology, and then also these patients can present with mixed shocks. So thinking about what can cause patients to have a reduction in their cardiac output and have cardiogenic shock, there's numerous things to consider, including myocardial infarction, mechanical dysfunction, arrhythmias, valvular disease, cardiomyopathy, and even other considerations such as pulmonary hypertension. Historically, data suggests that myocardial infarctions account for more than 80% of cases of cryogenic shock. 
More contemporary data suggests that there's more of a mixed picture. Still, the most common etiology is acute myocardial infarction, but an additional one-third is represented by non-ischemic cases, which could largely be thought to the advanced population that's aging with uh, heart failure as the main cause of potential non-ischemic sources. So now that you're a little more familiar with the cause of the shock, how would we rec recognize a patient that might be presenting with shock? Things that can, we can consider are some of the various clinical signs. This includes altered mental status. Patients might have cold, clammy skin, and we could also assess capillary refill time, and then also a, a decreased urine output. Additionally, we could look at uh, hemodynamic parameters. Most historically, people are aware of the reduction in arterial hypotension. Uh, these patients tend to have a compensatory response where they have increased tachycardia. And we could even get more invasive measurements looking at cardiac pressures that can help us determine various etiologies of shock. Lastly, that leaves us with some of our biochemical signs. These include elevations in lactate or changes in venous oxygenation. These serve as surrogate markers for understanding where a patient might lie in their balance between oxygen supply and demand. This information can also be utilized in combination of assessing peripheral circulation and volume status to help us determine the hemodynamic subset of a patient presenting with shock. So for example, if a patient were to present being cold and wet, uh, potentially on on exam found to have fluid in the lung, that patient would be categorized as classical cardiogenic shock, which can largely be thought to be due to acute myocardial infarction or uh, acute on-chronic heart failure. So to go a little bit more into detail of how a uh, patient with cold and wet shock, uh, its pathophysiology causes that, it's historically thought to be uh, uh, some kind of uh, damage might occur to the left ventricle, which uh, results in a decrease in cardiac output. This reduction in cardiac output directly affects our tissue perfusion, which is represented by our mean arterial pressure. In an attempt to compensate, our body increases our heart rate and increases our systemic vascular resistance to help maintain perfusion. This results in increased fluid return to both our right and left side of our heart, represented by our, our markers of preload and cardiac pressures. And the combination of this uh, with SVR, an increased preload actually causes a paradoxical decrease in our cardiac output. A greater appreciation has grown over the last couple of years that even patients with myocardial infarction have some component of uh, mass systemic inflammatory response where increased nitric oxide production actually cause, causes a decrease in systemic vac vascular resistance. This can further lead to a reduction in our mean arterial pressure and MAP as less tissues uh, or less of our vital organs are perfused. If not uh, corrected upon in a timely manner, this can result in potential patient death. It's important to note that as we're thinking through this path pathophysiology, it is on a con continuum, which I think is well represented by the updated staging of cardiogenic shock, represented by the Society of Cardiovascular Angiography and Intervention stages, what I'll be referring to as SCAI for the remainder of the presentation. So in the example beforehand, if a patient's able to maintain uh, perfusion with its compensatory effect on heart rate and systemic vascular resistance, that would largely be thought of a patient with stage B, or the beginning phases of cardiogenic shock, as they don't have signs of, of tissue hyperperfusion yet. But as a patient's signs of hyperperfusion increase, which can be represented by those three categories we discussed earlier, they can progress up their staging. So at a point where a patient uh, might have elevations in lactate or further reductions in their blood pressure, they might be categorized as stage C shock. 
It's important to note that patients can move up and down this pyramid, but if they do reach a point of later on stage E shock where patients are in circulatory collapse, there's less we can do to fully correct the process. So it's, early, it's important to identify these patients early on in their presentation. And additionally, I had noted earlier at the beginning of the presentation that cardiogenic shock is thought to have a mortality rate of 34%, although there's significant variability depending on which stage we're looking at in these mortality trends. So this graph represents differences in mortality rates as we're progressing up our stages in shock, noting that patients with stage C shock have closer to a little less than 16% uh, mortality, whereas patients with stage E shock have a high mortality rate of 62%. The arrow on the graph here also represents the same effect that we have decreased perfusion, increased systemic inflammatory response, and organ failure as we're progressing up the graph. With all this information in mind, it's important to just consider that all these uh, patients are presenting at maybe a baseline difference in severity of illness, which could be key for selecting our therapies. That brings me to my first assessment question of the day. I invite you to text in your responses to uh, uh, to two two three 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 to uh, Mayo RX, and or you can go online and respond at pollev.com/slash Mayo RX. This is a free response uh, answer as well. KH is a 60-year-old male presenting with shortness of breath and elevated heart rate to your ICU. He has a past medical history significant for coronary artery disease, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Upon physical exam, it's found to have altered mental status, cool ashy extremities. So the question is, what is the most likely etiology of KH's shock? And just to start going through some of these, a lot of people are commenting that cardiogenic shock seems to be the most common source. But there are a few different answers as far as some of the other common known etiologies, such as obstructive or septic shock. Uh, and then also a few additional answers that are noting uh, specifically, maybe it's the cardiogenic shocks due to heart failure, or maybe it's due to myocardial infarction. Uh, I think that the point of this is really to drive home that it's impossible to determine the specific etiology of this patient's cardiogenic shock, just given that his description can often fit what we might be seeing a patient come into. So it is very relevant for us to get to the bottom of be better understanding of what etiology patients might be presenting with. So that'll be essential for our guiding our therapy, which will be the next segment of our presentation. Management of cardiogenic shock is, multi is multimodal, but most importantly, is properly recognizing what is the cause of the under what is the underlying cause of that, as that'll be most essential for us to correct to increase uh, to maintain perfusion for these patients. Medical management and mechanical circulatory support largely serves as a bridge to help us support uh, uh, perfusion to our vital organs, but it's not going to necessarily correct the underlying pathophysiology. That's essential to understanding as it's not necessarily that these agents are going to uh, help us correct that. They'll just help buy more time for us. The remainder of the presentation will focus on medical management, which includes things such as vasopressors and inotropes. So if our goal is to help maintain perfusion, let's go through what an ideal agent might look like and what we'd be targeting. So when considering our surrogate for organ perfusion, mean arterial pressure, there's two different ways we can increase that. We could look at targeting cardiac output or vascular resistance. Given that the underlying etiology of these patients' shock is a reduction in cardiac output, I think that would be the primary uh, mechanism we'd want to look at targeting. Additionally, cardiac output could be targeted by heart rate and stroke volume. Considering that these patients have compensatory responses in heart rate that are elevated, we want to necessarily further cause increased arrhythmias uh, being a concern with that. So stroke volume could be more ideal. 
Lastly, stroke volume consists of three variables. Uh, cardiac pressures that represent our preload on our heart, uh, the afterload, which is represented by systemic vascular resistance, and then our contractility. These patients, due to the compensation that is represented in the pathophysiology, tend to be uh, fluid overloaded at baseline, so we wouldn't necessarily want to target that more. Additionally, afterload, or SVR, has an inverse relationship with stroke volume. So as that increases, our stroke volume actually decreases. So contractility would be the ideal target, although it's important to note that we want an agent that also uh, causes us to utilize more oxygen, or cause more oxygen demand on our heart. So now that we're familiar with some of the things we want to discuss targeting, we'll look at some of the various adrenergic receptors in our body that could be utilized to, uh, to target this. First being our alpha receptors, specifically our alpha-1 receptor that's primarily located in our peripheral vasculature. Upon stimulation of this, a signal transduction cascade occurs that ends up resulting in tissue vasoconstriction. Additionally, when we look at our beta receptors, starting with beta-1 that's primarily located in our heart, similar signal transduction cascade occurs, resulting in increased heart rate and contra contractility in our heart. Whereas Beta-2 stimulation, which is primarily found in our peripheral vasculature, causes increased vessel vasodilation. An important mediator in this cascade is phosphodiesterase 3, which is responsible for the breakdown of cyclic AMP, which actually helps to terminate these uh, responses. This is an additional drug target, because if we block this, it will actually result in both downstream effects being an increase in contractility heart rate in our heart, but then also vasodilation in our peripheral vasculature. So now that we're familiar with our various adrenergic uh, receptors, we'll look a little bit more about our age, look a little bit more into what agents we could utilize to help correct uh, those shock, uh, to help perfuse these patients with shock. So looking into our shock box, there's largely three different categories in which our drugs fit into. Inoconstrictors, vasopressors, and inodilators. Considering how these agents work, there's varying degrees of uh, uh, catecholamine uh, alpha and beta adrenergic receptor activity. Uh, specifically, starting with our agents that are pure in their beta activity, these agents tend to have an increased effect on cardiac output, but actually a reduction in pressure. Whereas a pure alpha agent would cause an increase in our pressure, but a reduction in cardiac output. So specifically, starting with our inodilators, which are catecholamine agents, is represented by dubutamine, this is, increases our cardiac output, heart rate, and, our, and actually causes a decrease in our mean arterial pressure. It's important to note that melanone, a phosphodiesterase 3 inhibitor, acts independent of our beta adrenergic system, but in a similar manner. It's, thought to believe, it's believed that it can cause additional decreases in our mean arterial pressures compared to dibutamine, which can be relevant when thinking about uh, right-sided pulmonary vasculature pressures. Additionally, melanone has a longer half-life and is renally eliminated which are some considerations to keep in mind when, uh, when uh, considering how to dose it as an agent. That brings us to our inoconstrictor agents, epinephrine and dopamine. These agents have an, a mixed alpha and beta uh, receptor affinity, which causes an increase in heart rate, minoterial pressure, and cardiac output. And lastly, that leaves us with our vasopressors. Uh, I won't necessarily be talking about phenylephrine as it's not thought to be a, a, a pure useful agent by itself in the management of cardiogenic shock, but norepinephrine uh, would be an agent that further represents this, with mostly alpha activity, but some minor degree of beta activity. This agent causes an increase in mean arterial pressure, and largely does not cause an increase in heart rate, uh, and does have a small to minimal increase in cardiac output. So overall, that is a summary of our three different classes 
of agents are ion dialers, ion constrictors, and vasopressors in our shock box. So now that we've reviewed some of the agents, how are we going to best know how to utilize these? Well, we'll have to look a little bit more into the literature, first discussing some of the key studies uh, looking at vasopressor therapy. The first study we'll look at will be comparing norepinephrine to dopamine in the SOAP2 trial. This was a multi-center randomized double-blind trial comparing dopamine to norepinephrine. The primary outcome of interest in this study was rate of death at day 28. It's important to note that this study used a clinician-selected MAP goal. Key inclusion criteria was shock requiring vasopressors, so they did study a shock all-comers population. Key exclusion criteria was vasopressor therapy greater than four hours or serious arrhythmias at baseline. Baseline severity of illness, as represented by a median Apache 2 score of 20, represents a pretty high risk of mortality up to 40%. Additionally, the SOFA 9 score, another marker of our baseline severity of illness, uh, correlates also with that of a high risk of uh, baseline mortality. Important to note, when considering the baseline demographics of these patients, a majority of them did present with septic shock or distributive shock, representing two-thirds of the cohort, where roughly only one-sixth of patients had cardiogenic shock. When looking at the primary outcome of death at day 28, there is no difference when comparing dopamine and norepinephrine, as represented by the mortality rates below, where 52.5% of patients in the dopamine group had mortality at day 28, while only 48.5% in norepinephrine group. It's important to note when looking at key safety events that patients in the dopamine group had an increased rate of arrhythmias, specifically atrial arrhythmias. This led to an increased study drug discontinue rate, uh, which is clinically relevant in patients that were receiving dopamine. The study investigators had specifically uh, predefined a subgroup of uh, importance looking at patients specifically as cardiogenic shock. You can look here and see that the majority of these patients, roughly between 55 and 60 percent, had primarily cardiogenic shock due to myocardial infarction. Patients that received dopamine with cardiogenic shock actually had an increased rate of death at day 28. This is important as it represented a major landmark shift in the, the viewpoint as presented earlier that dopamine was one of our preferred agents in the management of shock outcomes, but then also cardiogenic shock. This definitely represents a, a change in practice. And important to note that norepinephrine, which was largely still had a preconceived idea that could be uh, harmful in these patients, actually could be the preferred agent. There's some limitations when considering the, the definition of cardiogenic shock in these patients, uh, specifically also that they didn't special, uh, specify how many patients had re early revascularization in comparison between these agents, and then also how many patients received mechanical circulatory support in comparison to dopamine to norepinephrine, which could confound the results. But overall, in summary, the key takeaway is that dopamine should not be routinely used in cardiogenic shock. So looking back into our shock box, Dopamine would not be the first agent I'd be looking to pull out. But what about our other ionoconstrictor, epinephrine? Our next segment of studies will take a closer look at this. The first study being the CAT2 trial. This was a multi-center randomized double-blind trial looking at norepinephrine compared to epinephrine. The primary outcome of interest was time to achievement of MAP goal greater than 24, uh, greater, or for, goal for greater than 24 hours without a vasopressor. Of note, it was a clinician-selected MAP goal, and if there wasn't one selected, a uh, MAP of 70 was targeted. Key inclusion criteria was that it uh, was anyone uh, with shock requiring vasopressors. So again, this was a shock all-comers population. Key exclusion criteria was patients with cardiac arrest or anaphylaxis, and de death that was determined likely within 24 hours. 
Similar to the previous trial, these patients had a baseline severity of illness uh, represented by the PATCHY2 score of 22, which signifies a very high rate of mortality of 40% while in hospital. And also similar to the SOAP2 trial, these patients were largely comprised of patients with septic shock. Uh, roughly one-tenth of, one -tenth of patients had acute myocardial infarction, which was the main driver of patients with cardiogenic shock. Looking at this primary, uh, when looking at this study's primary outcome, there was no difference when comparing norepinephrine to epinephrine in that time to map achievement uh, goal. Also important to note, there was no differences in mortality when comparing these agents. Looking at key, some of the key hemodynamic uh, data, just to orientate you to this graph, on the x-axis axis is uh, time at baseline uh, through hour 16 as represented by the H's, then further day one through day four as represented by the D's. You can see here that there was a transient elevation in patients that received epinephrine from hour four that persisted through day one, although this did, uh, did not continue past day one. Additionally, when looking at lactate, there was a statistical increase in lactate from baseline throughout day one, but again, noting that this was transient. These two hemodynamic parameters actually led to an increased study withdrawal rate with patients that received epinephrine out of concern for elevations in lactate. Something that this study then brought to attention was that epinephrine, just due to its beta activity, can cause increases in private dehydrogenase that actually increases our glucose and lactate. So this isn't thought to be similar to the lactic acidosis um, in type A that we see with patients that have uh, evolving shock and is more of a type B lactic acidosis, which is key in consideration because the study didn't show that in, although they had this transient increase in lactate, it wasn't worse uh, organ function. Major limitation in this study is that looked at a shock all-comers population. So what about patients specifically with cardiogenic shock? That brings us to our next study. Uh, Levy and colleagues in 2011 uh, designed an open-label randomized pilot study comparing epinephrine to norepinephrine and dibutamine after failure of dibutamine and dopamine to maintain MAP goals. They looked at, this study did not have a primary outcome of interest, just due to its limited size. It was more uh, exploratory, but they wanted to look at systemic and then also regional hemodynamic changes. The major study inclusion criteria was patients with cardiogenic shock with an ejection fraction less than 30%, and key to note that they excluded patients with shock from acute ischemic events, so anyone that had a positive troponin. This uh, would largely be excluding our patients that have acute myocardial infarction. Baseline severity illness, as represented by a median SAP2 score of 51 and a SOFA score of 8, correlate similar to the other studies with high rates of mortality, specifically the SAP251 score correlating with the risk of 48% of in-hospital mortality. Looking at these baseline characteristics that these patients had then of non-ischemic origin, uh, most of the patients had a history of heart failure, largely that was believed to be previously due to ischemic cardiomyopathy, whereas... Uh, also, just to note severity of illness at baseline, a majority of these patients also had comorbidities such as atrial fibrillation. So when looking at some of our data, there was no difference between MAP, between epinephrine and norepinephrine and dibutamine from baseline through hour 24. When looking at heart rate, patients that received epinephrine, similar to the previous study, did have an increased uh, effect in heart rate compared to the other group, as demonstrated by statistical difference from baseline throughout hour 24. When looking at lactate, similarly there was a transient increase, although this did resolve by hour 24, only being statistically different at hour 6 and hour 12. And lastly, there was no difference in cardiac index when comparing these agents. The study authors concluded that although there was no differences in 
actual outcomes between these agents that epinephrine could be considered to be safer, or sorry, norepinephrine and dobutamine could be considered safer to epinephrine due to concerns from these elevations in heart rate and lactate. Although they didn't necessarily report uh, a p-value, there was no difference in mortality between these agents. And there really isn't, I don't think the data necessarily supports their strong, uh, their, their strong conclusion that they had on this. As we uh, saw this transient elevation in lactate that did resolve, and again, no difference in organ function in comparison of groups. Major limitation of this study is that they looked at non-ischemic cardiogenic shock. So what about patients that have ischemic shock, cardiogenic shock? That brings us to the Optima CC trial. This was a multicenter, double-blind, randomized trial comparing epinephrine and norepinephrine. Of note, their primary outcome was, a cardi was cardiac index evolution at 72 hours. Inclusion criteria was specifically patients with acute myocardial infarction, causes of cardiogenic shock, that had undergone successful revascularization. Key exclusion criteria were patients receiving extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or deemed to be of marbund status, or a shock of other origins. They had a baseline severity of illness as represented by a SAPS 2 score of 57, which correlates with 60% chance of in-hospital mortality and a SOFA score between 9 and 10, correlating with a 40% chance of mortality. I want to call to mind that uh, at baseline, there was a non-statistical trend that patients in the epinephrine group uh, actually had elevations in heart rate and lactate, although not determined to be statistically relevant uh, or statistically significant in their differences although this information will be important when considering some of the outcomes of the study. Looking at their primary outcome, there's no difference from hour zero to hour 72 in evolution of cardiac index, although there was a small increase at hour two and hour four in patients receiving epinephrine. The study investigators commented that targeting cardiac index necessarily isn't a useful target uh, for patients with cardiogenic shock. So it's interesting that they then chose this as their primary outcome of interest. Additionally, there's no differences in MAP uh, between these two agents. When looking at heart rate, similar to the other previous studies, uh, they showcased a, a transient increase with uh, patients that received epinephrine from hour two to hour six, but this resolved after hour 24. When looking at lactate, similar to the previous studies, there's elevations in patients receiving epinephrine that persisted throughout hour 24 from baseline. And this led to uh, one of their the main safety event uh, of interest, which was determined as refractory shock, which consisted of a pretty heterogeneous definition uh, that was largely consistent of patients having elevations in lactate. Patients receiving epinephrine had an increased rate of refractory shock of 37% versus 7% the patients receiving norepinephrine. The, this is actually an outcome of interest that the trial coordinators had uh, came up with four years into the study that actually led to the study's termination as the review board determined that it was not safe to continue with this study. It's important to note this, that they didn't necessarily specify how many patients in each group and what the cause was. So we're kind of left with some questions if lactate was the primary driver of this, which based on our previous literature doesn't show any difference in, in organ function. Important to note too, there was uh, a non-statistical trend that patients receiving epinephrine did have increased mortality although the confidence interval is pretty wide of note, up to 16.2 on the far end to the, on the uh, right side of the 95% confidence interval. Overall, though, this study led to a lot of controversy as far as its interpretation. The study authors concluded that patients with ischemic causes of cardiogenic shock should not potentially receive epinephrine, although I think it's highly could be debated and is an area for future research, just given that the small sample size of the study 
They only compared roughly 60 in each group. So I think this is an area that, uh, in practice, we should continue to potentially investigate. When looking at uh, meta-analysis of data from randomized controlled trials, comparing epinephrine to norepinephrine to butamine, and then epinephrine to norepinephrine, there was actually no differences between groups on effective mortality. So I think that, that this answers some of those initial concerns with the data from the Atma CC trial, which was included in this randomized trial, or sorry, was included in the systemic review, that uh, there's more that we have to understand to better under, uh, get that relationship. And I think that it might be something that uh, more data will definitely be helpful, but I don't think we should necessarily preclude epinephrine from uh, all these patients. There was a systemic review of observational data that did show an increase in mortality, but I would just note the limitations of that, just given the ob observational data is limited and compared to our randomized controlled trials. So in summary, epinephrine provides similar arterial pressure support and clinical outcomes as norepinephrine and norepinephrine and dibutamine, although it's unclear if epinephrine increases ischemia and acute myocardial infarction. But looking into our shock box, I think both epinephrine and norepinephrine have important roles they can uh, play in these patients. That brings us to our next segment of discussing the literature, specifically looking at inotropic agents. First, we'll be discussing usage in uh, patients with decompensated heart failure. The OPTIME CHF study was a randomized trial of patients with systolic or heart failure with reduced ejection fraction comparing uh, 48 hours of melanone to placebo. Of note, they excluded patients with cardiogenic shock. The study's results found no difference in days hospitalized for, uh, for cardiovascular causes or mortality, although they did find an increased rate of hypotension and new atrial arrhythmias with patients that received melanone. A uh, post hoc study also found that patients with ischemic origin of their uh, cardiac heart for their chronic heart failure had an increased mortality as well. An additional study, the HAIR study, which was a retrospective analysis of patients admitted to the hospital for acute decompensated heart failure looked at one of four uh, patients that received one of four vasoactive therapies, melanone, dibutamine, nitroglycerin, or natriotic peptides. Again, this study largely excluded patients with cardiogenic shock, only including, only since 2.5% of the patients had a systolic blood pressure less than 90. In this review, patients with dibutamine or melanone had an increased rate of mortality compared to vasodilators after propensity score matching and adjusted odds ratio. This leads me to my conclusion that inotropes should not be routinely used in patients with decompensated heart failure without cardiogenic shock. It's important to note this difference as uh, th this, uh, there hasn't been a correlation necessarily with worsened mortality in patients that truly have cardiogenic shock where they have hypoperfusion. So that brings me to the discussion then of what, if, what about in patients with cardiogenic shock. Uh, and a recent trial recently pub published in New England Journal of Medicine addresses this, the Doremi study. This was a single-centered, double-blinded, randomized trial comparing melanone to uh, dobutamine, looking at a primary outcome that consisted of a composite of six clinical events. Of note, the composite outcome consisted of in-hospital death from any cause, but then all other markers of uh, end-organ failure, such as renal replacement therapy, or other concerns, such as stroke. It was a pretty heterogeneous outcome. And inclusion criteria, they looked at patients with cryogenic shock of any cause, with the SAI stage B through E. They excluded patients with out-of-hospital arrest, and then also patients that received inotrope prior to randomization. When looking at their baseline characteristics, patients, generally 80.7% of patients had stage C SAI staging. Additionally, these patients had a median baseline left of ventricular ejection fraction of 25%, showcasing that most of them had a component of uh, 
heart failure of reduced ejection fraction, potentially. Looking at causes of ventricular dysfunction, two-thirds had, had ischemic sources, and roughly one-third had, had non-ischemic sources of uh, ventricular dysfunction. When looking at their primary outcome of interest, which was the composite of those six different clinical outcomes, there was no difference in comparison of Miller known to dubinumine at day 30. When looking specifically at in-hospital mortality, Additionally, there is no difference between these agents with a rate of 37 point, with 30% of melanoma and 43% of the debunion group. There was no difference in su the subgroup analysis, but I, I wanted to pull out a couple of key groups uh, just because I think they're additive as thinking through some of the pathophysiology. They didn't, this study, although severely underpowered, just given the composite uh, outcome, nature of their outcome, they wouldn't be able to detect differences in these subgroups. Uh, specifically looking at right ventricular failure, which has largely been thought to be a group that patients with Miller known would benefit from given increased pulmonary uh, artery pr pressures that would, uh, could be further reduced with patients receiving Miller known. As noted from the Optime CHF study, patients that received Miller known had an increased rate of uh, mortality with ischemic origin, although this didn't show a difference between those agents between ischemic and non-ischemic sources. Lastly, patients with renal dysfunction, there was no difference. Although I think a lot of clinicians are maybe hesitant to utilizing melanoma given its concerns for renal elimination, this study showcased that there was no differences in those, those events. So overall, just given the summarization of evidence, I think inotrope selection is largely still based on clinician preference. And we can't utilize data from this study to necessarily say which group we might be best to utilize in. So looking into our shock box, again, uh, both dialers, I believe, have, uh, definitely could be great resources. That brings me to my second assessment question of the day. According to the results of vasopressor and iotrope randomized controlled trials, which agent has been shown to reduce the risk of in-hospital mortality? As the results continue to come in, I'll start to review some of the answers. Starting with the butamine, given the data from the Doremi study, which showed no difference uh, between dibutamine and melanone, there was uh, no outcome that affected uh, in-hospital mortality. Additionally, looking at option C, epinephrine, uh, just given the review of the literature, there is additionally no difference in mortality from those studies. So D, none of the above would be the correct response. I think that the failure of our randomized controlled trials in uh, this literature is something that we have to reflect upon to just help us better determine what, what, what would be a better trial design, potentially. I think given that the heterogeneity of just shock itself could be a challenge, it's important to maybe look at potentially defining patients that have certain phenotypic uh, presentations to help us guide therapy selection. That brings me to the last segment of our pre presentation, which we'll be looking at our phenotypic approach and management of cardiogenic shock. Starting first with patients that have left ventricular failure. If you remember back to some of our key etiologies, this uh, can largely be thought to patients having uh, acute myocardial infarction or patients with uh, acute on chronic heart failure. When considering our hemodynamic subset, uh, of presentation, these patients can present cold, wet, and hypotensive. Given their compensatory response and increased heart rate and systemic vascular resistance, I think it would be ideal to utilize an agent uh, or a combination of agents, specifically looking at either norepinephrine plus either of our inodilators or epinephrine by itself, as these will all increase our cardiac output and provide a level of uh, pressure support as well. I would lean towards favoring if a patient was presenting with tach being tachycardic uh, to a point where you're concerned about tachyarrhythmias, leaning more towards usage of norepinephrine and an inodilator as compared to epinephrine. 
But if a patient is bradycardic, I think that would be a great role for utilizing epinephrine by itself. Then when specifically looking at patients with uh, right ventricular failure, this could be due to inferior myocardial infarctions or other causes such as pulmonary hypertension. Noting the hemodynamic subtype, these patients could present cold, wet, hypotensive, or even normal tensive. And the key difference here when thinking about compensation is we want to pay attention to their pulmonary vascular resistance, which is elevated to their response. Given this, we'd want to utilize an agent uh, that would actually cause reductions in our pulmonary vascular resistance. And although we didn't discuss it, a vasopressor uh, such as vasopressin would be more ideal than norepinephrine, given that it has less effect on pulmonary vascular resistance than norepinephrine. And milrinone would be our preferred ion dilator of choice, uh, just given that it could have increased effect on pulmonary vascular resistance compared to being causing those reductions. That brings us to patients with normal tensive shock. Noting that the etiology is multifactorial and of all origins, essentially. The key here is that these patients present warm, wet, and normotensive, and their compensation is actually able to maintain their mean arterial pressure. But they still might be having signs of hypoperfusion and, or and organ failure. In this case, it would be ideal to utilize an agent that actually might cause some reduction in our SVR that would actually increase our mean arterial pressure and a cardiac uh, output. That would be our inodilator agents which I think either could be great options. And lastly, that brings us to patients with mixed shock. I think an important population of interest in this are patients that are initially presenting with distributive receptive shock that actually have a, an ischemic cardiomyopathy component that, forgets, that progress to having mixed shock. Additionally, there could be other mixed etiologies as well. Noting that their hemodynamic subtypes in this case can be quite variable and could also be mixed in origin as well. But the key here is that their initial compensatory response to want to increase SVR is knocked out. In which case, uh, according to the updated sepsis guidelines, utilization of norepinephrine and dibutamine or epinephrine alone are offered as agents, uh, preferred agents. I think that this makes sense as we want something that's going to increase our arterial pressure and our cardiac output. And it's not necessarily that melanone it doesn't have a role in this, it just hasn't been studied in patients with septic shock that have progressed to a cardiogenic component. So until more data exists for that, I'd favor the usage of dibutamine with norepinephrine in this case. So that brings us to our last assessment question of the day. First, looking at our patient case. JL is a 70-year-old female admitted for treatment of urosepsis on moderate doses of norepinephrine vasopressin. Despite achieving goal MAP, her lactate has continued to increase, prompting a bedside ultrasound to assess the function of her heart. What therapy would be the most appropriate to improve JL's evolving shock to increase cardiac output? A addition of dopamine, B, addition of epinephrine, C, addition of dibutamine, or D, either B or C. As the answers continue to come in, I think uh, looking at option A, I I'm glad that everyone recognized that I think addition of dopamine in this patient would not be ideal. And then when considering between the differences between option B and C, I think both are fine options, and I think maybe some initial concerns with the usage of epinephrine alone uh, or just some initial still concerns with lactate. I just want to emphasize again that although epinephrine has this known effect on increasing lactate, there hasn't necessarily been data that shows that that worsens outcomes. So I, I truly believe that uh, either epinephrine or dibutamine would be uh, ideal options in this, making uh, answer D uh, correct. But I, it still could, could definitely be interpreted up to some clinician variability. So looking then in summary, some key takeaways from today's presentation 
is recognizing that the etiology of cardiogenic shock is heterogeneous with quite different in uh, rates of mortality when looking at our SAI staging of shock. There's no pharmacologic agent that has been shown to decrease mortality in cardiogenic shock, although dopamine you should be avoided. And then lastly, future studies should utilize a pragmatic and phenotypic approach uh, focusing on early initiative therapy. So targeting patients that might have stage B, shock or B or C shock, as it's important just to catch these patients early on before they, as represented by the pathophysiology, might have a spiraling effect where it might be too late to intervene. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Music